Welcome to the aggressive life. He's got a legendary name and a legendary record to back it up. In his career, Mr. Two-Time, as some people have taken to calling him, he's amassed two Indianapolis 500 wins, two IndyCar championships, two IROC championships, a pair of wins at the Rolex 24 at Daytona, a 24-hour endurance race. Today, we're talking none other than Hall of Fame racing legend Al Unser Jr., half of the historic Unser Racing family. Al Jr. grew up on the track with gasoline, motor oil, fast cars in his blood. Oh, I can feel the testosterone coursing through my veins, dirt. Come on, come on, come oh, on. Oh, it's going to be a good day. Alongside his father, Al Unser Sr., and his uncle, Bobby, the three combined for a record nine Indianapolis 500 wins between them. But even with an impressive pedigree and success stacking up, Al Jr.'s life off the track was a tailspin. Years of alcohol and substance abuse was wreaking havoc, and even after his retirement from racing, addiction cost him jobs in the industry and resulted in public backlash. Three decades later, after his first 500 win, Al Unser Jr. has a new lease on life. He's he's done the hard work of recovery, of finding success, and charting a path forward for others to follow. He's got a new book out. It's called A Checkered Past. I've got one right here with me right now. He walks readers through the ups and downs of his career and life. He points them to his ultimate source of hope and healing. Today we're talking driving cars at 200 miles an hour. We're talking rehabbing cars. We're talking about what it takes to win the biggest stages. Man, a lot of great stuff to talk about here, including clawing your way back from the brink. Welcome to the aggressive life, Al Unser Jr. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Brian. That's that's quite a an opening, I tell you. It's, uh, we've had quite a life, and and honestly, we've been uh, we've been truly blessed uh, all the way through it. Yeah, pleasure's all ours. I remember as a little kid watching TV, and race car driving was pretty popular in the wild wide world of sports and those kind of shows. So I, I, I watched watched it a lot. I remember watching you a lot. I remember watching you on, um, I think it was you and your dad on um, Uniroyal tire commercials. <laughs> I think you run. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Dad and I did a lot of, a lot of stuff together. So uh, we mainly, you know, um, there in home in, uh, in New Mexico, I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's where I was born and raised. And, uh, and my dad too, he also was born and raised in Albuquerque. And so, um, during the racing season is during the summertime. And then during the wintertime, it's off season. And we would go to Northern New Mexico and go snowmobiling. And, uh, we were avid snowmobilers. And, and so, uh, that's kind of what we did. Uh, we did most of that together up there, snowmobiling in, in Chama. Snowmobiling is serious high speed, isn't it? Today it is. Yeah, yeah. Today it is. When uh, when we were doing it, you know, um, the snowmobiles weren't what they are today. Today there's hand warmers, there's seat warmers, there's all kinds of, they, they have so much power and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but back in the day, it was, uh, they'd get stuck a lot really? in the snow up in the mountains. And, and it was hard work to get a snowmobile unstuck once it, once it gets there. So I've gone to, uh, upper Michigan and the upper peninsula, snowmobiling a few times and uh, just rented some sleds and took my family one time and it was awesome. I took uh, yeah. took my daughter up. <laughs> my, my youngest daughter, I think, was maybe maybe 13 at the time. Never ridden anything you know, automotive at all, gave her own keys, said, let's go. And it was a stupid move as a dad. It was an aggressive move as a dad. One time she was, she just, she's freaked out. She's flying behind me. She can't see. And she decides to just jump off the sled and the thing just buzzes right by me. Uh, I mean, there's something about that. The speed, when you got trees on either side of you, it's exhilarating and scary. Quite honestly, that was different kind of riding than what we did. When you will go up to Michigan, you're on groomed trails and you're going through the trees and 
honestly, you're most of the time you're going too fast to be going through those trees like that. Yes. But in New Mexico, we're up in the mountains. We're on logging roads. There's there's no groom trails or anything like that. You're you're out in nature, and and quite honestly, for mountain riding, uh, northern New Mexico has the best in the country. Interesting. So, yeah. I'm curious. We got a lot of substantive issues to get into, but first I want to talk about non sure. non substantive issues. I want to talk about inanimate objects. I want to talk about engines. I want to talk about cars. I think you know a little bit okay. about that. I'm kind of into that. Have you been following or watched the uh, Netflix series on Formula One? I have. Yes. What, Definitely. What's the like? Give us a primer. Those of us who are not race aficionados, which I am not. I've watched that series, and I watched you as I was a kid in the Indianapolis 500, and like nothing in between. Break down for us. What's the difference between F1 racing, uh, the cars in the Indianapolis 500, NASCAR? Like, could you give us a broad stroke understanding? Sure. Your Formula One car and the Indy car, let's just take those two for example. They're, they're purposely built single seat open wheel race car. And when I say purposely built, the F1 car is built to run on a road course. So it accelerates and it stops and it turns left and it turns right. And you got a bunch of shifting going on and all that kind of stuff. And then your Indy car is a purposely built car to run to over 220 miles an hour consistently on an oval going in a circle like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And so uh, with that said, they're just two purposely built race cars. Uh, the F1 car is, is a little bit, quite a bit lighter than the, than the Indy car. And, uh, and, it's it's built to accelerate and stop. And so the way that the rules are today, um, the F1 car is they're allowed to innovate. They're allowed, in other words, Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull, they all have to build their own car. They cannot go someplace and buy a car mm. and race it. Where in the Indy cars, it uh they're all Delara's, they're all Delara built race cars. You have to purchase it. You cannot build your own car in in, in IndyCar. Really? Huh. And 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 so it's more it, they did it for cost purposes and stuff like that. And so and, and they achieved it where everybody runs the same wings, the same car, all that kind of stuff. And and uh and so it's more what we call spec racing. Just like in NASCAR, you have your Toyota, you have your Ford, you have your, your Chevrolet. But when it comes down to actually measuring the car and all that, they're all the same. They're all spec cars uh, to make the competition more equal and also to keep the cost down. So you're saying in the Indianapolis 500, everybody has the same vehicle. So the only thing that separates you is the driving skills? It's the team. It's not the, yes, it is the driving skills, but it's the whole team. So when you make pit stops and all that kind of stuff, uh, strategy plays an important role in it. How the cars are prepared to run in the Indy 500, it puts more emphasis on the people that are preparing and actually running the car. So, so for our listeners who haven't watched it yet, I recommend that if you have a, an ounce of interest in mechanical things or actually in leadership and human drama. The F1 series is really fascinating. I, I knew nothing about Formula One. I figured it was just Indianapolis 500 gone to Europe. And it is, wow, it yeah. is cutthroat. It is high, high dollars. It is drama. It is um, relational drama, not racing, racing drama so much, but um, relational drama. It is my word. It, uh, yeah. I can't, I, yeah. the amount of money that's spent on those machines and that innovation, how it makes any financial sense is beyond me. I, th th those companies must just all be writing it off for PR and you're writing off hundreds of millions of dollars. It's insane. Well, when you think about it, you know, Mercedes, Ferrari, not so much Red Bull, but, but Mercedes and Ferrari and McLaren, 
they all produce road cars to sell to, you know, the world. And so Formula One is considered the most elite racing in the world. And their budgets back that up. You know, you've got Ferrari spending over $700 million a year. Mercedes doing the same thing. Um, McLaren doing the same thing. So now what they've done is because the costs just keep going just crazy. They, they put a cap on it now. Huh. And, uh, and I don't know when they're going to implement the cap. Um, but it's the, the cap is at like 250 mil is, is what they're going to spend. Okay. Now, when you talk about IndyCar racing to run the car, a uh, competitive car like Andretti Autosport, Penske Racing, Chip Ganassi Racing, these are your top teams in, in Indy cars. They're spending approximately eight to 10 million a year on their cars. Okay. So that gives you the difference of, wh- of what it is. And it's also because of the rules. The, the rules, they want to keep that cost down in, in IndyCar racing, where, you know, in, in Formula One, they, they're, uh, they're using hypercars now with electricity and all that kind of stuff. So, as far as single seat open wheel race cars are concerned with, the F1 car is the most advanced automobile in the world. Right. For sure. Yeah. So you as a racing man who's spent more than enough time behind a wheel, what are some of the things that you pick up watching that series that you find interesting or that you might want to enlighten us on? It's the same as a pro quarterback can talk about something <laughs> right? something in a football game that the rest of us wouldn't see. Like, what do you see? What do you, what, what did you find interesting about that series? What I find interesting about F1 is, is A, you know, Murphy's Law, the, 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 the more mousetraps that you build, the more things that can go wrong. With those advanced automobiles, you know, there's mistakes that are made, you know, and, and so I, that, that's what I focus on when, when I'm watching strategy or I'm watching, hearing them listen, talk on the radio, you know, that their, their brakes are getting too hot or their tire degradation is getting, getting too much. Then they got to back it down and all that kind of stuff. So that's primarily what I listen to is which, which one of the teams is making the, the least amount of mistakes. How well prepared is their car to go out there and just run it flat out the, the whole distance? I do find it interesting how those riders can tell the wear on their tires and how yeah, that makes a difference. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I have no clue how they do it, but they do it. Yeah. So you, when you were doing Indy 500, you couldn't tell the wear in your tires as a driver? As a driver, I could. Okay. Okay. But but as a team, they're getting data from the car that's saying oh, right. that the tires are going away, and so I'm going. I don't know <laughs> how that can be, you know. But uh, but they do. They do. And and NASCAR. Whatever happened to NASCAR? It was like that was a runaway trait freight train of popular sport. Then all of a sudden, just like it just vaporized, it went away. We just, we don't hear about it anymore. What? Why is that? I don't know. I, in America, NASCAR is still the most popular uh, racing series in the country. And, and so um, I think there was an infatuation with, with NASCAR in the, in the mid-90s that they just grew, 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 and, and then they leveled out, you know. And, and so uh, – but NASCAR is still super competitive. Um, what NASCAR has over IndyCars – is that they run the Toyota Camry, they run the Chevrolet Camaro, they run the, the Ford Mustang. On on race days on Sunday, okay, they're, they're full blown race cars, okay, they're not they're, they're not anything of the kind. However, your everyday fan is going, I've got a Ford Mustang in my garage, mm-hmm. and so it 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 backs up the, the whole theory. What wins on Sunday? sells on Monday. Oh, interesting. And so that's why um, NASCAR, because they have the the factory backings of, you know, Chevrolet and Ford and Toyota. So. Well, speaking of factory backing, I'm sure you've seen it. That movie Ford versus Ferrari was amazing. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> same, yeah. Same, it same, was really cool. It was. Same question for you. Like when you watch that movie, were there, were there any light bulbs that went off that you said, oh, I didn't know that, or things that you thought of 
I can't believe they didn't put that in that movie. Um, no, the, the one thing that, that I learned and I learned from Ford versus Ferrari was, was when their brakes started going away, they could, they could take the whole corner suspension piece off and interchange it in the, in the cars. Okay. So when, when I won, I won the Daytona 24 hour twice in the, in the late eighties. Okay. 86 and 87 and halfway through the race. We changed our brakes, but it was only the brake pads that we changed. We didn't change the rotor and the whole corner of the car, you know. And so, you know, back in the day in the 60s, when when you've got Ford versus Ferrari, which was right on the 24-hour Le Mans, they, they changed the whole thing. So it was just, it was the timing of it. The advancement of the automobile, basically, is what what it was. So you did a Daytona 24. That means you literally were in the car 24 hours? No, we've got three drivers. Okay. And sometimes they use four drivers. Uh, in 86, we had three drivers. It was Al Holbert, Derek Bell, and myself. We drive for two hours and rest for four. Okay. And then drive another two hours and rest for four. The car does not rest. <laughs> the, the car is out there running the whole 24 hours. So you're growing up, your dad was a racing legend. Like when did it dawn on you that your dad was a big deal? Was that your whole life or that had to be an interesting dynamic? I was eight years old. And back, back then in 1970, my dad won his first Indy 500. And he was in this beautiful blue and yellow Johnny Lightning special. Okay, Johnny Lightning was like a, a car set for for a young a young kid like myself, eight years old. And so, um, in that day, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with my sisters, and they had it on closed circuit TV. So what we did was. We went down to the Civic Auditorium downtown in downtown Albuquerque and watched it like a theater. The car was just so beautiful. Uh, went in the Indy 500. I think he led 190 of the 200 laps. And and I just remember it so vividly that I went home and I got my Johnny Lightning set out and I started <laughs> playing with the cars. And, and I it, just for sure from that day forward, I wanted to drive like my dad it was just he was my my hero and um and so it just happened that a year later that there was a go-kart track that was built about a mile away from my house we watched this happen my dad goes you want to you want to race go-karts and i went well yeah <laughs> yeah i want to race and so um at nine years old uh, I started racing go-karts and we didn't stop for the rest of my life. So. so for you, the fact that your dad was in it, that was an incentive. Whereas some guys feel like they want to separate themselves from their father. You felt like you wanted to build on it. Is that, is that accurate? No, I wanted to emulate my dad. It was something that, that, that I loved racing right from the get go. I loved it. And, uh, and I was good at it. When I turned professional racing, which I was 16 years old and I went from the go-kart to a sprint car and I started, it was my first real automobile and started racing professionally. My dad noticed the press asking me questions and comparing me to my dad. And he, he noticed this and saw it way before I did. I didn't even know. And, and he just, he, after, after one of the, one of the races, he, he sat me down and he goes, he goes, look, I don't care what you do for a living. You can be anything you want to be, a doctor, lawyer, whatever. The only thing I care about is that you try your best. And if you try your best at what you do, then the best will come back to you. And once, really, once my dad said those words to me, I never felt any pressure from being um his son, you know, and, and the nephew of uncle Bobby and their great success. You know, I was, like I said, I was so blessed to be born in that family that went and I was able to do something that I truly loved doing. 
Uh, what a great line. If you try your best, the best will come back to you. Yes. That's what, yep. Yep. That's all he cared about. He goes, I don't care what you do. Just, just the only thing I care about is you try your best. Yeah. That's strong. Yeah. So you, you started out racing. Did you feel pressure to live up to your dad's name or was that not an issue? Well, I put pressure on me (laughs) because I wanted to win and I wanted to win at the, at the, the top level in the country of racing, which is the Indy cars, the Indianapolis 500. And so in order to win at that level, you truly have to do it. You know, you, you have to do it yourself. There's, there's no, you know, you're in this single seat over wheel car, which means you're by yourself. Mm. Okay. And so there's no one there driving it for you and that kind of thing. And so, um, and I just loved it. Brian, I just, I just love getting out there and driving these automobiles that, that, that are the most performance automobiles in the country. They, they simply are. And so what do you think guys, it is about wanting to go fast? Um, I don't know because it, it really wasn't, it wasn't really about going fast. It was about getting, getting the car handling through the corner. Okay. Yes, we're at these high speeds. Yes. Okay. I think somebody who really wants to go fast is your NHRA drag racer. Right. Okay. That goes from zero to 320 miles an hour in three seconds. Okay. That, that's fast. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's fast. But, but for me, you know, because, because during the season, during the championship, we, we had, 18 races on average through the, through the season. So there's points and there's a championship at the end of the, at the end. And, and so most of those races were on road courses. They were on, you know, like the long beach grand prix is, is a street course and, and, uh, and so on. And so, um, it was all about driving that car. It was all about doing that. And then, and then going fast at Indy, Yes, you're at those consistent speeds, but you've got to get it through the corner in order to do that. And so I, that's where it was for me was, was really getting the most out of your car, working with the team, working with the engineers, me pushing the envelope as a driver to go out there and do it. Like when I first started, there wasn't any computers on the, on our cars. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't any data logging of any kind, you know, so so when I first started my first two, three years of racing, I would go out and I would drive the car and then I would come back in and, and my engineer, our crew chief mechanic would look at me and go, what do we need? How, what, what do we need to go faster? And then I would say, okay, well, the car's doing this and this and this in the corner. How can we make it to where it's going through the corner with, with the front end and so on? gripping and and all that kind of stuff and so they totally relied on me now today for example you know we kind of talked about the f1 car and all the data those cars come in and they instantly the engineers and so on just start looking at the data Hmm. and they very rarely even ask the driver what's going on (laughs) anymore right because they can see it they can they can actually see what's going on i um I, I grew up, my parents were not gearheads. They didn't have nice cars. Nicest car we ever had growing up was a Chevy Citation <laughs> back in <Okay>. 1982. <laughs> but I got, I pegged that thing. I could get that thing up to 85 miles an hour. So I got to 85 <laughs> miles an hour. And um, and then I've never re- I've really had f- fast cars. Um, I'm into motorcycles because motorcycles go, go pretty fast. So a number of years ago, yeah. at that point, I owned a Harley. And um, I had my Harley to, to 100 out west and and you know kind of open roads you can see everything there's not cross streets or anything like that out in the middle of right. nowhere and a guy had a bmw motorcycle on the trip which we were kind of giving him a hard time box we were all kind of harley snobs at that point mm-hmm. he brought this bmw out and he said hey you might want to ride it i was like yeah okay i'll ride it i hear it's kind of fast and i'm going i'll, I'll see what this thing does once you're over 100 it, mu- it must not make any any difference 
Oh, it makes a massive difference. Oh my gosh. I, I think I, <laughs> I know for sure I was at 120. I might've even hit 140 and it had way, way more in it. And I was just like, it, it yeah. freaked me out. What's the fastest that you've gone in a car? The fastest I've gone is down the straightaways at Indianapolis. And in 1994, uh, I was driving for Roger Penske and we had a trick engine and I went over 245 miles an hour down the straightaway. Gosh. Yeah, it was bad. It was good. Yeah, I mean, that, that feels a lot different than 150 or 200, right? Well, once you get up into those numbers, Brian, you're just, you're, you're going fast. It's just that simple. You're just going fast. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1 has got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a micro habit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. <laughs> to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. Cars were fast, but then you were living fast. You got into some um, just personal stuff from too fast of living. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, you know, it, it actually started when I was in high school, hanging out with my friends and so on. And, and, and we would smoke marijuana. It was just that simple, you know, and, and going to school and, and that kind of stuff. And, and that trend, once I got out of school and I started racing, that trend just kept going. I didn't think it, it never crossed my mind at all that, uh, that this could be bad for me or anything like that. And, and so, um, it just kept going. Um, I was married at a very young age. I was married when I was 19 years old and my wife, Shelly loved the cocaine. She had her, basically her drug of choice. I had my drug of choice. And, and, and as we were getting older and so on in the racing world, there's so much stress and pressure because I was, I was at the Indy 500 as a driver, my rookie year, I was 21 years old. I had a son and this business is dangerous. That's simple. And I, and I think it was, um, you know, it, it could have been a way that Shelly actually coped in our personal life. We, we just were, we're having fun and, 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 you know, I was racing and being successful and, and, and I was making a lot of money from being very young at 21 years old. And, and so that trend just started, just, just took off and kept, kept going. And, and so, you know, I, I talk about it a lot in my book. I just never thought that, uh, that anything would, would, would really come of it. And, uh, but then I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't thinking that, you know, this, this could be bad. And, and, and so, um, so you're getting high after, after every race at this point, it's, it's a, it's a nightly thing. It's an all day long. You're stoned. What is it? Well, it, it, it would all depend. You know, I, I, we raced the, the 18 races during the season. Okay. And so that meant that I worked on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Okay. Uh, Mondays were Monday and Tuesdays were mostly off days. I didn't have a, a regular job, 40 hours a week, eight to five or what have you. I didn't, I didn't have that. And so when, when I wasn't in the race car, when I wasn't doing my duties or, or then, you know, I would, 
I would get stoned in, in midday, midday and, and so on. And, and, and so I wasn't a big drinker at all going through all of my, really my twenties and my thirties, whenever I would have to go to work and so on, then, then I wouldn't that, you know, that simple. And so, you know, never, never in the race car. I mean, that's, that's just like total suicide. If you were to even think about being inebriated in any way, getting in the race cars. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so that never happened, you know, and, and yeah, after the race, especially if we won the race, it'd be party on, you know, and, and so on. And, and, uh, it was accumulation of years of doing this, that, that grew into something that was just, uh, diabolical. Really. What was the, was there a trigger point that, made you realize, okay, I, I need to do something about this. I just can't keep going this way any, any longer. Brian, honestly, there wasn't really a, 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 a trigger point. I, I always kind of knew in my twenties and thirties that this ain't right. This, this ain't right. The way I'm living life, this ain't right. And, and I asked my dad and it, it was in the mid nineties that, that I went to my dad and I go, dad, I got a problem, you know, with all this. And, and, um, I think my dad was in denial. He knew that there was some issues going on, you know, but, but he was in denial and, and, and I asked him for help and, and he goes, okay, well, let me make some calls and let me talk to some professional people about this and so on. And he came back to me and he said, all the professionals have, had told me, I can't help you, that you have to do it. We have to do it. For, for anyone that has this disease, it's up to us to do it, okay? But there is help in the beginning of acknowledging that you have an issue, and then there's the, 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 the 12 steps that you do. There is help. That's why they, they have the, the rehab centers, and, and they're really good, okay? And so... So there is help out there. Okay, for myself, I couldn't check myself into a rehab, and my dad even even agreed with this whole thing. He, he goes, "You have to do it. You know, if we check you into a rehab, the whole racing world's going to know it, and you're going to get fired. Mm. You're going to lose your job just by going and getting help." Wow. Okay, which was not the truth at all. They all would have helped me. It wasn't until I had already basically retired. My first rehab center was in 2002, and I was still driving race cars, but I was at the end of my career at that point. I was, you know, I ended up actually retiring in 2004. So I had already won the 500s. I had already done what I wanted to do and that sort of thing, and I wasn't wanting to really race anymore at that time. You really have to want to do it at that level. You have to sacrifice everything that it takes to do it because it simply is, it's dangerous and you put your life on the line and you got to be willing to do that. And, uh, and at that time in my career, I was, I wasn't, uh, wanting to do it anymore. I had already accomplished all the things I wanted to. So many of us have been through recovery ourselves, or we know somebody who has. So this isn't like a taboo topic or a topic that there just wasn't a knowledge like 20 years ago. It was, it was, it was a little more under, under the water than it is right now. So most of us know, hey, this is, this is the, it's a journey, the thing you keep going with your life. But was there a, a crossing over point where you felt like, okay, at this date or this thing, I felt like I got on the other side of, of a major barrier. I felt like this was when recovery kicked in for me. Was there, was there anything like that for you? It, it, it's a gradual disease. It's a slow disease. It, it, it's slow to come on. Once you jump off that cliff, you, you're off the cliff. Okay. When did I jump off that cliff? I had no idea. I still have, I, I have no idea when it became, um, from, from just having a good time to, to, you know, I'm wanting to do this, you know, as much as I can, you know, I felt that way when I was a teenager, yeah. you know, really what I did for a living, I was, I was so blessed 
by God to have the talent to go drive the race cars at that level that, you know, I could, I could just, you know, stop doing stop smoking and, 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 and all that kind of stuff and get in the race car and, and drive the race car and be competitive and, and, and eventually win. And so there was two Al juniors, there was Al junior, the professional race car driver. And then there was Al junior, the, the, the husband and the, and the father and so on. And that life was just a wreck. It was a mess. Okay. And what made it a mess was the fact that the substances that, that Shelly and I were doing was stealing ever so slightly the self-esteem that you need to have to be a parent, to be, you know, a, a, a husband and so on. And, 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 and it was just stealing that away. And so eventually, you know, the, the, the Al Jr., the personal, um, was just a wreck, was just didn't have any self-confidence, which, which in turn made me, I didn't start any businesses because I didn't want to get out of my little square box that I was so comfortable in. I didn't have, I didn't have Jesus in my life at all. I didn't, I didn't study the word at all. That, 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 that didn't happen until much later in my life. And I thought I was in control of everything and, and that kind of stuff. And in 2020, when I was baptized and, and going to church with my mom, you know, I had tried everything. And really, Jesus is the one who bridged, who bridged that gap for me. What clicked for you to see that Jesus was your way? I was being the good son, taking my mom to church here in Indianapolis. I had I had moved from Albuquerque to Indianapolis in the fall of seventeen, and uh, and I came back here for work, and I just I, I still wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I was like, for example, I would go and I'd walk through a grocery store and I'm getting groceries and I somebody would recognize me, and it made them happy, but I couldn't see that. I I just all I could see was was my failures and and so on and, and and so I never really did forgive myself for all of the bad stuff that happened to me in my life and came my mom to church I just one day you know I, I'm I'm there and and listening to Jesus and and He died for our sins and and it, you know it's all about forgiveness and and I'm going I finally just kind of thought you know. I never really have given this a shot in believing in Jesus and in becoming reborn again. And it happened in an instant. Mm. I went, you know, I need to give this a try. I need to give this a try. I need to become a believer in Jesus Christ. And instantly I had a warm feeling in my stomach. Instantly. It happened that fast. I then started studying the word and started going, okay, let's give this. And, and all of a sudden, little by little, I started forgiving myself for what was going on that, that God has forgiven me. Yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, those of us who have been believers for a, a period of time, we've been, we've been immunized where we've gotten, we've gotten Christ in our life, but we've just kind of, I think, gotten used to it. We, um... We, we don't maybe see the benefits that we already feel because we've just gotten used to um, there, there is a presence of the love of God. There is a presence of his grace. And we're used to that feeling, so we just think it's normal. Or we're used to all kinds of things that come with having Christ in your life. And those, that's why those early, early conversion stories where someone comes to know Christ and we know them, that's why it's so stimulating to our faith. We're like, oh, that's what it was like for me. <laughs> I forgot about that. It's been a while. That I mean, yeah. just even hearing you talk about that with it uh, three years ago, that's that's fresh. That's really good, Al. Love it. It's huge. It's huge. You know, when I was when I came out of that water, it was just so fresh and so new. And that's the first time I've been baptized. I was glowing. I was. I was just. My stomach was full of butterflies and all that kind of stuff. And and I asked one of my one of my 
brothers in, in my small group. I go, what was that? He goes, that was the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit in you. And I went, well, that's cool. I want, I want more and more and more of that, you know, and it's, it's just brought a whole new person out of me that, that is long past. You know, I used to have that kind of confidence in my teens and my twenties and, and just bulletproof, just absolutely, you know, and now I'm not bulletproof, but I have, I have Jesus watching my back. And when I've got that, I'm golden. Have you thought much about what kind of racer you would have been if you had, you know, been a believer in your racing career? Do you think it would have helped you? Do you think it would have tamed you? Do you, I mean, what, what do you think would have happened if you had what you have right now back when you were doing the Indy 500? Because there's some people, some people could make the argument that, you know, you got to, you got to have a, a bit of crazy in you to be behind a, behind, behind a steering wheel. You got to have a, a bit of, um, aggressiveness, which is called the aggressive life. Aggressive is a right, bad word, right, but, right, but I'm right, talking right. like a, a, um, you know, a lack of all concern, a macho bravado cutthroat. Some people would think that you have to have that. Maybe you do have to have that in the race course would having Christ accentuated all your things. Do you think it might've tamed you a little bit behind the cockpit? I think it would have done both. I don't know. Okay. So the results of the, of the races, I don't think would change at all. I, I, you know, but I would have felt better. I would have, I would have remembered more. I would have enjoyed myself more than I did. I would have been calmer. I would have been more aggressive. I would have been all that because I would have had him watching my back. God's had me on this path. He still has me on this path. And that's the way it, that's the way the ball bounced, let's say. And so, but I would have felt a lot better. You said I would have been calmer and more aggressive. Those two things for a lot of people don't go together, but, but I, I think I know what you're talking. You're saying calmer because you realize there's a heavenly father that takes care of the birds and knows the number of hairs that you have. And you can live in that confidence assurance that you're, you're not random chance coming from cosmic goo that there is a person with a personality who's great, who loves you, that enables you to be calm. And then I think we were saying with the aggressive is therefore I can push a little bit. Therefore, maybe even I could take a risk that could cost my life because I'm living for the next life beyond. I, I, it pushes you. Is that what you're saying? Calmer and more aggressive. You want to blow that out at all? Well, yeah, yeah, we can unpack that. Okay, so when you're out there racing, you have to be aggressive in order to win. And there's a real fine line of being aggressive and too aggressive. And this is something that Mario Andretti taught me. It is it is is controlled chaos. You you have to be calm. But at the same time, you have to be aggressive and you have to be attacking. It's a real fine line about that kind of thing. And so I would have felt a lot better, you know, doing the races and running the races and that sort of thing had I had uh, Jesus in my life. You mentioned earlier, you said that you had the talents to drive race cars at that level. I think that most of us all believe if we had the shot to be behind a car, I could do that. I think it's part of the part of the pool of NASCAR. You know, good old boys who are drinking a six pack a day are like, I could do that. I, I could do it. Which we watch uh, other athletes. We we know we can't do that, but it's really not the way it is, right? I mean, it's it's nobody no, can just do it. No. So what is it? What what are the talents or the skills that you have to have to be able to do what you did? That are, that you can't just be just because you you're you're trying hard. Right, right, right. It's it's hard to describe what it is truly like driving a race car. It's nothing like getting in your car on in the morning and going to work. You're you're trying to go as fast as you can, so mentally you have to be there. You have to be um, anticipating what's going to happen. Like a lot of people think that that we have super reflexes or something like that because we're going so fast. And you avoid an accident and that kind of thing. 
It was all about anticipating what's happening because you are going so fast that if you react to something, it's already too late. When I'm out there racing, my heartbeat was 190 to 200 beats a minute. Wow. You're really not really doing anything. You're not, what brings that heart rate up like that is the mental side of driving the race car and making making sure it's going through the corner and there's no surprises and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's intense because if you make a mistake, you're dead. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's just one little mistake. And, and so, you know, you have to be on the top of your game and that, and that's why I say God blessed me with that talent because I could be off of the racetrack at home and partying all kinds of stuff, you know, smoking marijuana and so on. And then just go to the racetrack the next day and, and get in the car and start practicing. And, and, you know, within, within a lap of, of being in that car, it brought my attention to that car. In other words, when I stood on the gas, it pinned me in the seat and, Oh, this is serious. Yeah, you know, I I better wake up. I better start concentrating everything on this. And so, I was blessed to be able to do that because it made me breathe hard. It made me mentally think. It made me aware. It it put me right in the present moment, yeah. and that was a true blessing that that came from came from God. And and so, do you do you age out in racing? Because you just get old, older and sustaining 190 beats a minute is just too uncomfortable. Is it your reaction times aren't what they used to be? What, what, what causes guys to age out? For me, it was, it was just the desire. I didn't have that level of dedication anymore. And so once I felt that, you know, it's time to get out of the car because when you're not fully concentrating on it 1000%, then you're going to make a mistake and you're going to hurt yourself or even worse, you're going to hurt someone else. And so that's, yeah. Oh, this has been fantastic. Is there anything you want to talk about that uh, we haven't talked about yet? (laughs) Uh, No, I think we've kind of covered it. I, uh, um, I kind of saw your list of things. My, um, my personal car is a is a Chevy Suburban. Ah, okay. okay. I did want and, to know that. And and if I could have on the city streets, if I could have automatic steering, everything, I would. Okay. If I could get in my car and tell it to take me home, I would have that. Right <laughs> now, not on the racetrack. I would want full control of the car on the racetrack and the performance and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so, uh, but my personal car, if I could, if I could get in it and tell it to take me home, I would. <laughs> so you got one, you have one vehicle right now, a Suburban, or that's just your daily driver? Well, my daily driver, yeah, right now I actually, most of my life I had a Suburban, but now I've got a dually pickup truck because Norma and I like to get in the, we, we have an RV trailer, yeah. fifth wheel. And so Norma and I like to to get in that and go away for a weekend and stuff like that. And so I've got a, a dually truck. Yeah. Uh, I had a thought that you uh, would have had a dually truck to pull around all your other fun stuff. I had a thought you'd have a Mustang, <laughs> you have a 69 Camaro, you'd have yada, yada, yada. That's interesting. There's no street automobile that compares to the single seat open wheel race car. Yes. Well, Al, this has been fantastic. Um, Your book is Al Unser Jr., A Checkered Past. We've only wetted the surface on some of the great content in there, and the pictures are pretty awesome, too, in the middle of it. I I love it. Whenever I have a book that has pictures and color pictures, that's always a good thing. Check that out. Available bookstores anywhere. Al, do you have any final parting words for us? Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, first off, I'm I'm working on the audio version of that book. Uh, we should have it out in the in the first of May. Uh, we're going to launch the audio version, which 
I'm telling the stories. And so I'm reliving all those kind of things. And then, uh, and then also, you know, the, the reason why I was so brutally honest and raw in the book with my personal life was to help someone who has this disease and needs help, wants help, go get help. It was worth me going out on that limb to help that person. And so the reason why I was so honest and, and, and put myself out there, like my mom, when I was writing the book, my mom's going, Al, you don't want to say that. You don't want to say that kind of stuff. You don't want to be that truthful. And I go, it's the truth. I got to, I got to, you know, and because I want it to help somebody. I want it. If we could help one person with substance abuse disorder, then it was worth me going out on the, on the, on the limb and worth it. Well, thanks for making an aggressive move to be helpful to people. That's, that's great stuff. Hey, we've talked about a lot of things today and I hope that you haven't just increased your knowledge of racing and cars and automobiles, but I hope that you've gotten something that might help you. Maybe maybe you're going to start going into rehab yourself. Maybe you're going to be more grace-giving to somebody who has a substance abuse issue. Maybe you're going to learn something. Maybe you want to try to take a new hobby and, and try to wrench on your own car. Maybe, maybe you want to drive 120 miles an hour on a track. I don't know what you want to do, but I hope you got something today. I know I have been very, very helpful. Helpful, a new friend of mine, Al Unser Jr. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.